You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 21. We're going to read together the first 14 verses of John 21, verses 1 through 14. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. He manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Peter... Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about one hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and fish placed on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to to land full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three, And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we pray that you would cause our hearts to delight in you and in your word through Scripture today. That the meditation of our hearts and the thinking of our minds may be honoring and glorifying to you. We've set this time aside to look at Scripture and what it says about the risen Christ. And we pray that you would bless this time, that your people would be sanctified by the truth, and that you would use your word to focus our attention upon Christ and what he has done for us, the resurrection and the implications of it. Bless this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, many of you have probably heard of the name Harold Camping. Some of you may have heard the name, but maybe you're not quite sure exactly why it is that that name sounds familiar to you. I first came across the name Harold Camping, or at least became aware of, of him and his ministry back in either late 1993 or early 1994, because he had come into the news in Christian circles because he predicted that Christ would return and the rapture would happen between September 15th and September 17th of 1994. Some of you, even as I made that last statement, you, I could see the, the light sort of dawning in your eyes as you recognize, okay, that's who Harold Camping was. September 15th and September 17th, 1994. And there was apparently some lady in our own community who thought uh, that that was a true prediction because I received a letter from her because I was teaching an adult Sunday school class um, at the time here at Tootie Community Church. This was before I started pastoring. And I had taught something that wasn't even up on the Internet. Of course, this was 93 and 94 when the Internet really hadn't been invented yet. Um, I had an Al Gore dig I was going to give there, but I won't. The internet hadn't been in, in, invented yet, and so uh, 
I don't know how she heard what I was teaching or even was exposed to it, but I got a letter with some books, and it was talking about how God was going to purge uh, this world and this nation of all the wickedness, and she quoted some passage from the book of Amos, I think it was, and uh, that the Lord was going to return, and she gave this date in September of 1994. Well, in 1994, you may be asking, what does the passage that we just read have to do with Harold Camping, right? Actually, as it turns out, everything. Harold Camping wrote a book called 1994. Actually, it was 1994. We had a question mark at the end of it, in which he made the claim that the Lord is going to return between, in September of 1994. Obviously, that didn't happen. And when it didn't happen, Harold Camping said he was off just a little bit. And then more recently, he set another date, May 21st, 2011. That was the most recent uh, date that he set. And of course, that date came and went, and here we are. He admitted when May 21st, 2011 didn't pan out for him, he admitted that he was off by just a little bit. Finally, in March of 2012, Harold Camping apologized for setting dates entirely, but repentance really was lacking. He really didn't come out and repent of that. He just kind of said, you know, I got the time wrong and the date wrong, and I'm sorry for doing this to everybody. And uh, he apologized for getting the date wrong, not for setting the date, for getting the date wrong. Finally, Harold Camping died in 19 or 2013 in December of that year. Now, what does Harold Camping have to do with John chapter 21? You might be surprised to find out that the secret sauce for, for understanding the date that the Lord was going to return, all of the details for that and the clues for that date setting are right here in John chapter 21. Now, let me lay it out for you. There are, uh, Harold Camping says in his book, 1994, question mark, again, he says in that book that, uh, this the, the numbers here in this passage, John chapter 21, give us the clues to the date of the Lord's return. And there are two significant numbers that he uses. The first is in verse 8, where it says, The other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. The key there is the word 100. It's translated 100 in our Bibles, but it actually literally is 200 cubits, a cubit being 18 inches. So the NASB translates that into yards for us, because it gives us some idea of how far out they were, but it was 200 cubits, or as we would say, 100 yards. So the real the real clue there is in 200 cubits, because the 200 cubits represents 2,000 years since the Lord was born. You see the connection there? 200 and 2,000. Of course, you're drawing the lines here, right? This is you're seeing this as plain as day. Now, as I begin to unfold this more and more, you're going to see how how logical and, and truthful this was. So the 200 cubits represents the 2,000 years since the Lord was born. Now, the Lord was born, according to Harold Camping, on October 4th, 7 B.C. So if you come up from that date, and of course you have to do away with the year zero, because it's a zero year and not a one year, so you have to skip over that year. Why? Because if you included that year, you'd be at 1993 and not 1994. But you skip over the year zero, because it was a zero year, and you arrive in sometime at the end of 1994. Clear as mud, right? Everybody follow me so far? The second significant number is in the number of fish. That's in verse 11. So Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Now, if you think 200 to 2,000 and setting an arbitrary date and coming up with 1994, if you think that was a bit of a stretch, Harold Camping's uh, hermeneutical yoga only gets better from this point forward. The number 153, you may not know this right off the top of your head, but this is going to become obvious as I lay this out for you. 3 times 3 times 17 gives you 153. Now, 3 is the number, well, let me let Harold Camping describe it to you in his own words. 
This is from his book, 1994. On page 504, you would be surprised. Look, I wrote a little book, and I covered a lot of material in like 200 pages. I don't know how anybody does 500 pages or more on on the subject of the Lord's return in 1994 and gets it wrong. But here's what he says. The number three signifies the purpose of God, whereas the number 17 signifies heaven. Got that? Purpose of God, heaven. Thus, we can learn that the purpose of God is to bring all believers that are caught by the gospel into heaven. Number three, purpose of God. Number 17, heaven. Furthermore, in the story, the Lord is standing on the shore, which represents heaven, where the Lord is at. The sea the disciples were on is the tumultuous times and age in which we live. The boat represents the church upon which the disciples were. And the church gathers together the people of God into it. Actually, it didn't in the story. It just drug them to land, right? But it gathers together the people of God and takes them safely through these tumultuous times and lands them at the shore, which is heaven, at the feet of the Lord who is there waiting for the disciples to arrive. Did you catch all of that? Good stuff, isn't it? That'll preach. Now, you are going to... Look, every time I read this story and I see the number 153, guess who I think of? Harold Camping. And now, thanks to me... That's going to be the case for you as well. And you're going to wish that you could flush your brain and get that little detail out of there. But from now on, every time you read this story, you're going to think of Harold Camping and his false prophecies. Anybody with two brain cells to rub together should be able to tell, obviously, that the Lord's intention in this story is not to give us the secret sauce for figuring out the date of his return. Right? There are some things that the Lord is teaching us in this passage, and we're going to see what those are. And I will I will tell you what the significance of the number 153 is before we're done. All right? So we're going to pick it up in verse 4. We looked at last week, uh, sort of setting this up, kind of getting this, the setting and the stage and who was there. The seven disciples were there. This is the longest recorded appearance of Jesus anywhere in any of the Gospels. It is significant to John because he spends more time on this resurrection appearance than he does even, at, uh, even on the events that unfolded on the morning of the resurrection at the tomb. John spends an entire chapter talking about this resurrection appearance. So I think it is significant to John just because of the detail that he gives us. So John is there, and Peter is there, John being one of the sons of Zebedee, and Peter is there probably with his brother Andrew, and they went fishing, and they labored all night long in, in, a, in a, a, a trade in which they were familiar, a trade that they had grown up in, and a trade that they knew well. They had done this often fishing, but they labored all night long and caught absolutely nothing. And that sets it up. It's on the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. That sets it up for the Lord's appearance to his disciples. It is after they have labored all night and caught nothing that the Lord chose to reveal himself to these, this group of disciples. So we pick it up in verse 4. When the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now John says it was when the day was breaking, which means it is at the break of dawn, it is very early in the morning, maybe as the sun is just beginning to start to lighten up the, the geography around it. So it's very early. They fished all night long through the dark, which was the time that you went fishing on the Sea of Galilee. That's when uh, they expected to have the, the, they would have the best I was going to say luck, but I don't believe in luck. They would have the best providence, the best uh, return for their investment by fishing at night. So it is early in the morning and they are done, probably packed up their nets, probably heading back into land when the Lord chose to appear to them. Now John says, and he uses language here that suggests a suddenness to the Lord's appearing. He says Jesus stood on the beach. It doesn't say he kind of wandered down out of the out of, out of the mountains or out of the up out of the valley to the seashore. It doesn't say that he walked along the seashore, came out of the city. He just stood there, and it's the same language that John uses. Uh, back in John chapter 20, when he talks about Jesus appearing in the room, the locked room with the disciples, Jesus stood in their midst. There was a suddenness to it. And then later on, a week later, when he is there with Thomas, again, 
He stood in their midst. It's, there's a suddenness to this language. And I think that John is trying to communicate this idea that, that you could look up on, along the, the, the shoreline there and then you glance down and you look back and there's a man standing there. It is a sudden appearance. Jesus suddenly stood on the seashore. But John says that the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. Now, why didn't they recognize that it was Jesus? We've seen other examples in resurrection appearances where the disciples did not immediately recognize him. Remember Mary at the tomb after she brought Peter and John there? Mary was at the tomb, and when Jesus appeared, she thought he was the gardener who had taken the body and done something with it. She didn't immediately recognize him. Remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus did not immediately recognize him, uh, not, seeing Je- uh, not, not being allowed to see Jesus and understand who he was. Um, but that was a supernatural and sovereign veiling of who he was to those disciples for a purpose. Why didn't they recognize him here? It is possible, I think, that there might be a natural explanation for that, for this, this phenomenon here. Remember, it is at the break of day, which means it's just starting to get light. It might have been still dark enough that they couldn't make out on the shoreline who it was. And also keep in mind that they are a hundred yards away. A hundred yards away, and it is early morning, probably just starting to get light. It's very possible that just naturally they could not make out who it was on the beach, on the shoreline. So when Jesus spoke to them, they didn't recognize immediately that it was the Lord. It may be possible also that Jesus veiled his identity until the fish were caught. For a similar purpose that he veiled, as he did when he veiled his identity to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, until he had a chance to explain to them who he was. And it might be a similar thing going on here. They didn't understand or recognize who he was, but once the fish were caught, then it was as if the veil were lifted and they were able to discern who he was. So it is early morning. Jesus appeared on the seashore and he said to them in verse 5, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? If you fished all night long, that might sound like a what? It kind of every, I don't think the Lord intended it this way, but it sounds to me as if it's sort of a, a barb. It's almost kind of a, you don't have any fish, do you? But it's not that way. I mean, that's what I would have said, right? Taunting people who had fished all night long and got absolutely nothing. That might be what I would say, but I don't think that's the Lord's intention. I think it is the Lord's intention to highlight the fact that they had labored all night and received nothing. And it's not that he is really inquiring to them as to whether or not they've caught something. He's not searching for information. He knows exactly what has happened because he has been sovereignly keeping those fish out of those nets all night long. So he knows their condition. He knows the situation. But he is pointing it out to them. You do not have any fish, do you? Now notice their answer. Well, we tried. We fished all night long. We did our best. We thought we had some at one point. Did they do anything like that? Just real short. No. No. I don't think they even wanted to talk about it. And, and they didn't recognize who it was that is asking them this question. But if you fished all night long and you got absolutely nothing, do you want to have a conversation about it? You don't want to have a conversation about it. You don't have any fish, do you? No. Thanks for asking. Keep moving along. And so then Jesus said to them in verse 6, they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. Now, there's something in this command that sort of admits to us the question. Why is it that these fishermen who fished all night long, why is it that they would have taken the word of a man on the shore that they did not even recognize, they thought he seemed to be a stranger, why would they obey that? That's a bit curious, isn't it? Why would they obey that? Who does this guy think he is? He hasn't been out here with us. Some guy walking by on the shore, early morning stroll, and he has the audacity to tell us, experienced fishermen who have done this for a business for years of our life, who grew up in this industry, we know this lake like the back of our hands, we know everything that we are doing, if it were possible for us to catch fish, we would have caught fish. And this guy, standing on the shoreline, says, throw your nets out on the right-hand side of the boat. 
Oh, it's the right-hand side of the boat. You don't think we've tried the right-hand side of the boat several times in the course of the evening? Why would we? Why do you think the right-hand boat is to be preferred over the left-hand side of the boat? We've tried the front of the boat, the back of the boat, the right of the boat, the left of the boat. We've tried every inch around the edges of this boat, and we've got nothing all night long. I have to wonder, as John MacArthur suggests in his commentary, if the disciples started to ask themselves or wonder themselves, what does this? why doesn't this guy just keep his nose out of our business? Why is it that they decided to obey the voice of a total stranger on the shoreline that day? There's two possible explanations. The first, it might be that they suspected that he, from his vantage point, maybe he was up a little bit higher on a little rise or something, maybe they thought that he, from his vantage point, could see something in the water that they could not see and was giving them kind of a heads up. Or as J.C. Ryle suggests, maybe there was some sort of supernatural compulsion that came with those words that made them to obey Here's what J.C. Ryle writes. Whether it is likely that seven tired fishermen, after working all night and hauling up their net and stowing it away, would stop on their way home at the advice of a stranger and cast in their net once more in broad daylight is a point which admits of question. My own impression is that a secret power and influence went out of our, with our Lord's words, and without knowing why, the seven disciples felt irresistibly constrained to do what the mysterious stranger advised. End quote. Now, he's not suggesting that they found themselves, their bodies, doing this activity and then had to ask themselves, why are we doing this? Why are, we, why are our arms moving? I can't control my arms. We're throwing out the nets. Not that type of strange compulsion, but the type of compulsion that if you were to appear in the boat and say, why is it that you are following the advice and obeying the word of the stranger, that they would have said, you know, I don't know why. It just seemed like a good idea at the time, and so we did it. I think that that's probably the explanation for it. They just said, sure, why not? We've tried everything else. We've tried the left hand. We've tried the right hand. Let's give it one more shot. And so they felt compelled to obey, because obeying in that moment seemed like a wise and right course of action. And so that's what they did. And they obeyed the Lord, and they cast the net, verse 6. They cast the net, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. And in that act of obedience, they were blessed greatly for what they did. And this, I want you to see, they were not even able to haul in this great net, this catch full of fish in this, in this net. They weren't even able to bring it into the boat. Seven men not able to lift this massive haul of fish in the net into the boat, which they normally would have, would have done. Because the, the catch and the provision was of such abundance. And this I see as an indication of exactly how God deals with us, often, oftentimes when he blesses us and provides for us. Isn't it not true that God provides for us and doesn't provide for us just what we need, but almost all the time, above and beyond anything that we need? He could have provided seven fish, one for each man. If he had provided four large fish, huge fish, it would have been enough for all of those men to share a fish for each two of them, um, or a fish for every two of them. He could have provided in that way, but he didn't. He provided not seven fish, but as we'll see later on, 153 fish. And though oftentimes or sometimes God's provision for us is meager, it is what we need, and sometimes even barely what we need, even that we have to confess is more than we deserve, right? Even if God just provides barely what we need, that is still far more than we deserve. And yet oftentimes God provides not just what we need, but abundantly above and beyond what we need as he did with the disciples there this day. This, what, what, tip, what typically defines and describes God's provision is not that he is stingy in his gifts, whether it is of grace or physical blessing, but God delights in blessing his people far and above and beyond what we need. 
And that is exactly what he did with these disciples. And, and, and all the way through this passage, we are struck again with the, the reality that there is an abundance. John continues to describe this massive haul of fish that, that stunned them that morning because of what he had provided. And in blessing, in, in obedience to God, there is a blessing. And, and we've said before, and I've said this, and I know David said this from this pulpit, uh, bl- uh, obedience itself is its own reward. Obedience itself is its own blessing. Even if God did not bless us in any way for an act of obedience, the act of obedience itself is its own reward because we are rendering to God something that He deserves and that we are obligated to give. And even in doing that, that act of obedience, even if we receive nothing for it, is its own reward. But oftentimes God blesses the obedience of His people. He commands us to do something and we do it. God blesses that obedience. And we see that all the way through Scripture. God blessed the obedience of Abraham. He blessed the obedience of Noah. He blesses the obedience of David. He blesses the obedience of his people because God delights in that. And so these men, even and this act of obedience is not even a faith-filled act of obedience. They didn't say before they cast out the nets, it's the Lord and he has said this, so let us obey so that he might bless us for our obedience. They weren't even doing this as an act of faith. They weren't even doing this knowing that it was the Lord. But they followed what they thought was fruitless and pointless and useless advice. They followed that and even in that act, God chose to bless them far above and beyond what they needed and far definitely above and beyond what they deserved. So, in verse 7, Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now I think there's something about this, I think there's something about this entire scene that was strangely familiar to these disciples. And we read back in Luke chapter 5, um, the event that I think sort of colored the events of this day. And that was when Jesus called these disciples to come and follow him the first time. Luke chapter 5, on this same lake, right? Some of these same disciples, the sons of Zebedee and Peter and his brother Andrew, these same disciples were out fishing. They had fished all night. Jesus got into the boat with them that day in Luke chapter 5 and pushed out from the shore and he taught the crowds. And then he said to Peter, put down your nets into the water again. And Peter said, Lord, we have fished this lake all night long. We have nothing. But since you have said it, we will do it. And they did it, and they obeyed the Lord, the command of Christ, and what happened? A massive haul of fish. And the nets began to break, and they pulled all those fish and filled up two boats, and the boats began to sink. And then Peter confessed, Lord, depart from me, I am a sinful man. And Jesus said, fear not, Peter, from now on you're going to be catching men. And they got back to shore, and Peter and John and Philip and Andrew and the rest of that company left the boats, and they left everything, and they followed Jesus. And so now what is happening in John chapter 21? It's a very similar scene, isn't it? Fishing all night in that same lake, probably in that same boat that they had had before. And they fished all night, and they have caught absolutely nothing. And then they've been told to put the nets in, and they put the nets in, and now they have this massive haul of fish. And they can't even haul it into the boat. And and if they had tried, it probably would have threatened to capsize the boat itself. They couldn't even get the fish into the boat. And I think it was those similarities that made John, in the midst of all of that work, suddenly think to himself, hold on a second. This is like deja vu all over again. Right? And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. What does Peter do? Peter's got a peep. Peter does exactly what Peter was prone to do. Put on your jacket and jump into the water. Why wouldn't you, right? I mean, who among you wouldn't put on your jacket and jump into the water? Verse 7, Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Peter heard that it was the Lord, and I think Peter realized as well that it was the Lord, who else would be able to do this? He did this before. This must be him. 
So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. The King James says Peter was naked. It doesn't mean that he was literally physically naked, but that he was comparatively naked. In other words, he was stripped down for work, probably a very light uh, outer garment, and uh, uh, maybe even a, a sleeveless shirt of some sort, not the type of thing that you would go greet company or be out in public uh, with. And so they had take, he had taken off his outer garment and laid that aside because he was working, and it was hot and it was warm and it was working up a sweat. So he put that on and jumped out of the a boat onto the, into the water. And it's interesting that some people in church history, some commentators and scholars, have tried to argue that Peter at this point walked on water just like he had on a previous occasion. And so then he didn't get his, his coat wet. Some have suggested that they were close enough to shore 100 yards out and that it was shallow enough there that Peter jumped out expecting to wade, and that's why he put his coat on rather than leaving the coat in the boat to stay dry, that they were it was shallow enough that Peter could get out and probably pull up his, his outer garment and wade all the way into shore. Or maybe Peter just did what Peter would do and jumped into the water really without thinking, you know, do I want a dry jacket when I get to land? And it jumped into the water and did what Peter's going to do. I want you to notice how the temperaments of John and Peter are on display again in this passage. We've seen in the Gospel of John, in fact, we've seen in all the Gospels, that that John was the more pensive and thoughtful of the two. Uh, John was the first one to perceive something, and Peter was the first one to act on something. John, remember when they got to the tomb? John arrived at the tomb first and stooped down and looked inside, examined the scene, checking out the inside, looking at the grave clothes, looking around, listening things, and kind of quiet, didn't go in. But what did Peter do? When Peter showed up, went right in past John. John is the first one to perceive, Peter the first one to act. John was the one who, inside that tomb, saw the grave closed, empty tomb, started to think about it, put two and two together, and John says, at that moment, that disciple whom Jesus loved, believed. How about Peter? The thoughtful one? Scratches his head a little bit and wanders away from the scene. But Peter's the first one to act. So when Peter and James and John are up on the mountaintop and the Lord appears there and Jesus is transfigured before them, what does Peter say? Let us build three tabernacles up here right now. Not even really thinking about what he's saying. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We'll have three of these built. We'll get the building permit tonight. We begin construction at 7 a.m. tomorrow. We'll have this all done tomorrow. Peter wants to act. When the, when the crowd shows up to arrest Jesus in the garden, Peter grabs a sword and starts swinging. We're not going to think this thing to death. We're not going to, we're not going to reason with these people. The time for action is now. Even if you criticize Peter for being the type of man that he was, you have to admire his zeal and his love for the Lord. Peter just jumped in because, well, that's Peter. And I don't know if I'm the only one that thinks this, but when I read this every single time, I think to myself, why did you leave those six guys to do all of the work in the boat and to bring those fish to land? Right? If I'm one of those six guys, I think, okay, we were not able to do this with seven, and now one of us is jumping into the water. Peter, if if Jesus wants to see you, he will hang around until we get to shore. If Jesus does not want to see you, jumping in is just going to run him away faster. So what do you accomplish by jumping into the water? And so then all of the rest of the disciples had to tow the fish to shore. They still couldn't bring it, so they brought all of the, uh, still couldn't bring it into the boat, so they brought it with the net full of fish on their way into shore, doing all of that work. Now with only six of them instead of seven of them, Peter's gone on his way to the shore already. So verse 8, the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but only about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. Now what we see here is Jesus expressing and showing his compassion and concern for the disciples in providing something for them. I think there is, there is a lesson to be learned here. And it's not when is the Lord going to return or how many years is it going to be until the Lord returns. The lesson to be learned in this is that these disciples would have to look to Jesus for both their provision and their faithfulness. 
They could go out and labor in a trade that they were familiar with, that they were skilled at, that they should have produced something, and they would labor all night long. But unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain to build it. Psalm 127, verse 1. If the Lord doesn't want you to earn anything in a business or an occupation or a job, you're not going to earn one red cent no matter how hard you work. But if the Lord wants you to earn something in an occupation or a job and to see his abundant provision, then he can provide something abundantly even for a little bit of labor. He can bless that however he sees fit. And these disciples would have to learn, you're not going to be out fishing for men or fishing for fish. You're going to be out fishing for men. You're going to go out to the remotest parts of the world. You're going to spread my gospel and preach my word. You're going to be establishing churches and teaching and raising up disciples and men in leadership positions, which is what these disciples would do. But they would have to trust Jesus for their provision. And whether I work an hour and make a ton or I work an hour and make absolutely nothing, ultimately that is the Lord's decision. Is it not? It's the Lord's decision. And they would have to learn to trust him for the faithfulness uh, for the fruitfulness in that ministry as well. If you and I labor in gospel preaching, gospel proclamation, sharing our faith, and labor for the Lord, and we do this faithfully, and we do it for years with zero converts, whose responsibility is that? Yours? The Lord's. Right? He is the one who has to change the heart. And if you go out and you preach one message, and 3,000 people get saved, is that you? It's not you. It's the Lord. So he is the one who is the source of both our provision and our fruitfulness in ministry, and that's what these disciples would have to learn. And I think that that's one of the great object lessons here. And then the Lord demonstrated his compassion and his care for them in providing for them a breakfast. Look at verse 9. So when they got out on the land and saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Now, how does the risen Lord prepare breakfast in the wilderness? He just wills it to be so, right? He just does. Just breakfast. And there's a fire. There's a fish. There's bread right there, and he is roasting that for them. Where did the fish come from? We don't know. Where did the bread come from? We don't know. How did he make the fire? We don't know. I would suggest that it could be something miraculous where he just simply made it appear out of thin air. He can create fire out of nothing and make a bush burn in the wilderness and not be consumed. He can create fish out of nothing, which he did back in John chapter 6. In fact, this provision of food in the wilderness at this time for these disciples is very much reminiscent of what we saw in John 6 when Jesus fed the 5,000 with the few loaves and the few fish. And he fed a multitude there at that time, providing for his people in the wilderness. This is like that Old Testament passage where it says, The Lord prepares a table for me in the wilderness. And that's what the Lord did, even in this passage. Preparing for his disciples again. And they would have to walk up to the shore and to see this and realize, just as when he fed the 5,000, now he is feeding seven. And it is completely his doing. This is completely his grace. The Lord is able to do this. He is the provider. And he does this even in a miraculous fashion. Learning all over again that even when they have nothing... He is able to provide exactly what he needs. And that's what the Lord did here. And notice in verse, uh, it is verse 9, that this was a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it. There's only twice in all of Scripture where we read of a, a fire of charcoal, of a charcoal fire. Only twice. And both times it is in the Gospel of John. Do you remember the first? Because back in chapter 18, it was a charcoal fire that was in the courtyard of the high priest. Remember what happened around that, that charcoal fire? You know, the soldiers were there warming themselves, and Peter was there warming himself. And what did Peter do? Staring into the, that charcoal fire, Peter said, I do not know the man. And now the Lord has set a charcoal fire, and what is the next thing that he's going to do, which we're going to look at next week? He's going to restore Peter to ministry. Do you think it is an accident that the Lord created a fire out of charcoal to stand next to while he restored Peter to ministry? I don't think so at all. He could have created a fire out of oil, out of wax, out of parchment, out of wood, out of a bush that would not be consumed. He could have created a fire out of anything. He chose charcoal. Why charcoal? 
Because at a charcoal fire, Peter denied the Lord. At a charcoal fire, Peter would be restored to ministry in the service. I don't think it was accidental at all. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Now, if Jesus is providing fish and bread on this fire for the disciples, why does he ask Peter to go fetch some of the fish that he caught and add it to the fire and to the charcoal? Why didn't Jesus just, if the fish that he provided was not enough, why did Jesus ask Peter to, to get more? Why didn't Jesus just create more fish? Why wasn't the fire, did the fire not have more fish in it? Why ask Peter to add some of his own? I think this is all speculation, but I can just, I put, I put myself in a situation, let me suggest something. It could be that the Lord is again trying to get Peter to come to grips with what he has just provided and trying to keep the, the abundance of that fish and that provision at the center of this scene so that they are able again to face the reality of, okay, we do have a net full of fish. It may be that the Lord here is doing something that is tactile and physical so that Peter would realize this is not a hallucination, this is not a vision, it is not a dream, this is real. You can't roast real fish over a hallucinated fire. You can't do that. And so by asking Peter to take the fish that he had just caught, Peter would have to handle this, he would have to place it over a real fire, and all of this would be a reminder that this is not a vision or a dream that you are seeing, Peter. This is actually real. The Lord is risen. It is Him. He is here. Touch Him and feel Him and see Him. This is not a hallucination. I think that might be one reason. It might be also that that typically when the Lord provides for us, it is the fruits of our labor, right? We go to a job. We work. We serve Him. Uh, we get our paycheck at the end of the month or every two weeks or however that works out for you. Or maybe you don't get paid at all and, you know, you're, you're skunk like the disciples on the sea after all night of fishing. But the Lord provides for us through the labor and through the work that we render to a boss or to, uh, to other people. And even though that is the fruit of our labor, it is also the gift of God. And we can't see that. We, we, we can't see the, 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 that the fruit of our labor is something other than God's provision. That is the means of God's provision. Now, Christ has provided for his people here in two ways. Miraculously, on the shore, the fish and the bread, which was over the fire, that is a miraculous, supernatural, created, created out of nothing provision. And he has also provided for them through their efforts, which he commanded them to do, and then blessed the efforts of their labor. And I think that the Lord here in this, in this event is combining both the labor of Peter and John and the rest of them, the fruit of that, and his own miraculous provision, and he is putting them together and saying, taste and eat, and see that the Lord is good. Eat, taste, and enjoy these things, not only the fruit of your labor, but also his miraculous provision. So that's what the Lord did. Peter then, verse 11, went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Notice how John is repeating this, the abundance of this provision. The net was full when they threw it in, and it was so big they couldn't even bring it in. And, uh, and yet the net was not breaking. That's another expression of this abundance. John is amazed at the catch that is before him in the, in the amazing amount in the abundance of this provision. And now we come to that number, 153. And what is the significance of 153? Well, Harold Camping is not the only one who has leveraged his creative juices to try and come up with uh, some sort of symbolism or meaning in the number 153. So I'm going to give you a few examples of things that have been suggested. If you take the number 153 and you add those numbers together, 1 plus 5 plus 3, what do you get? You get 9. You know what 9 is? 9 is also 3 times 3. You know what 3 is? 3 is the number of the Trinity. So if you take the number of the Trinity and you multiply itself, you get the same number as 1 plus 5 plus 3. That is, I know, you are, that is truly amazing, is it not? Also, the number 153 is what is called a triangular number. 
triangular number, meaning that if you have, uh, that if you took a pyramid, an equilateral pyramid, so three equal sides, and you put uh, the dots equally spaced on that pyramid, like for instance, if you started with 17 at the bottom and then 16, 15, 14, 12, all the way up to one, you would have 153, you would have an equilateral triangle. That means that no matter how you flip that triangle, you'd have 17 on the base, 16, 15, 14, flip it around, you get the same thing. So it's a triangular number. Uh, just like you have if you take three and then you put two and then one at the top, no matter how you put that triangle, you're going to have three, two, and one, right? Well, a triangle is a symbol of the Trinity because that's three sides and it's one shape. It's been used as a symbol of the Trinity. Therefore, the number 153 is a number that speaks of and symbolizes the Trinity. There's a third one. 153 is also the number of the psalm plus the number of the Trinity. The psalms is the book of praise. God is the Trinity. So the number 153 symbolizes or represents praising God. Get that? How many of you came up with this all on your own? No, you didn't? All right. Let me give you another one. If you take the numbers 1 through 17 and you add all of those numbers together, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5, and you get all the way up to one number 17, guess what you arrive at? The number 153, right. Now that means there might be something significant about the number 17. You know significant about the number 17? The number 17 is 10 plus 7. 10 is the number of the 10 commandments, obviously. And 7 is the number of the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit. Kind of a Roman Catholic idea of some sorts. So you have there represented in the number 17, the law and the Spirit. 10 plus 7 is 17. 17 being the operative number here. I don't know if you knew this, but 153 is also the numerical number of Jesus' name and Peter's name. So if you take Peter's name, Simon in the Greek, which is Sigma, Iota, Mu, Omicron, Nu, and you allow that to stand numerically so that A equals, well, Alpha equals 1, Beta equals 2, uh, etc., uh, Gamma equals 3, and you do that, and you add up all of the, the, the number of values for Simon's name. Of course, you have to do this in a Greek because it doesn't work in English. I mean, the Bible wasn't written in English, so don't go crazy with this stuff. But if you take the, if you take the Greek name Simon and you add up the numerical values, you come up with 76. If you take the word Christos for Christ and you add up its numerical value, comes up with 77. Guess what happens when you add 76 plus 77? You come up with 153. So the number 153 is obviously symbolic of what Jesus and Peter can do together. <laughs> Please, Jim, make it stop. No, no, I got more. It is asserted that 153 is the number of fish that they believed at that time existed, the number of different types of fish existed in the whole world, 153 different kinds of fish. And so in this catch of 153 fish, there is a symbolic representation of one fish for every kind of fish. And the fact that the disciples brought in all kinds of fish was an indication of the worldwide scope of their ministry, where they would bring in people from every tribe and tongue and nation, uh, tongue, uh, that's tongue and kindred together. Uh, they would bring that from every nation all into the kingdom of God because of their work. And so the 153 represents the worldwide scope of their ministry. Also, it is said that back then they believed that there were 153 different languages on the face of the planet. And so that that number then represents, of course, bringing in the catch from every language of people and that that was the worldwide expression of the gospel. Now, there are more, but let me let me suggest to you my own. I'm not setting you up for anything. I mean, just don't start snickering. I think it is possible, in fact, I think this is actual, that John records there were 153 fish. Wait for it. Because there were 153 fish. That's it. No symbolism, no mysticism, no 
cute analogies, no numerical numerology. There were 153 fish. Why would John record that? If it's significant, why didn't he tell us what the significance is? If it's not significant, why did he record the number? Luke recorded the massive catch in Luke chapter 5, but he didn't give us a number. John records the massive catch, but he gives us a number. Why? John's a fisherman. I've talked with fishermen that can tell you how many fish they caught on every day of every excursion of the last three years. And where they were at when they caught them, and how big the fish were when they caught them, they have a mind for those details. If you ever talk to a hunter who can tell you where he shot an animal and next to what ridge and on what day of the week it was and at what time of the day it was and how many points were on that animal, how many antlers that animal had. Have you ever talked to a hunter who can do that? Who can recall all of the details of a significant thing down to the minutest detail in the most amazing detail possible? Have you ever talked to somebody who could do that? John was a fisherman. He had hauled nets full of fish into a boat his whole life. He had done this Hundreds upon hundreds of times. But there was no catch in all of his life and all of his experience that was like this. Do you think they counted the fish? You bet they counted the fish. Because one of them at some point said, I wonder how many fish are in that net. Let's count the number of fish in that net. And that detail, because it was so unique and so miraculous and so incredible, was forever etched into John's mind. And this is just one of the details that John gives us because he has a mind for details. And we see that in this gospel. Why were there 153 fish? Because there were 153 fish. That's just it. Does the Lord have some significance to that beyond 153? I don't think so. It could have been 154. could have been 200. could have been 100. I don't think there's any significance to the number itself. Other than the fact that John is just again telling us how many large fish there were in this net. 153 large fish is a lot of fish. And it would have provided for this men, these fishermen for a long, long time. So then Jesus gives them an invitation. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. There's a gracious invitation there, come and have breakfast. And then John gives this note, none of us dared to question who he asked him, who are you, because we knew it was him. Well, if you knew it was him, then why did your mind even think to ask him, who are you? Right? I think this is John's way of saying, we knew it was the Lord. We wanted to ask to make sure it was the Lord. But we didn't ask to make sure it was the Lord because we knew it was the Lord. And yet, even though we knew it was the Lord, we really wanted to ask Him. But we didn't want to ask Him. Why? Because we knew it was the Lord. The last thing you want is a reproof, right? Oh, ye unbelieving and heart of hearts, slow to believe all the Moses and the prophets. Do we really want to go through all of that again? No, we knew it was the Lord, but we didn't want to, we wanted to ask Him, but we didn't want to ask Him. And so they're in this, in this mental ambivalence at the, at the moment. Not quite sure if they should ask Him, but not really wanting to ask Him. Um, I think here we see, again, something we've seen in other resurrection appearances where where Jesus, even though it is the same physical body, and that is obvious to them because it has scars and the wounds of his passion, there's something about the resurrected body of Jesus, free from the corruption and the ability to die and all of that, there's something about the resurrection body of Jesus that was similar, but different enough that it wasn't recognized immediately, but similar enough that once it was recognized, it was unmistakable. It was different, but it was the same. Different enough, should we ask him just to make sure? But the same enough that, no, we know it's the Lord. Let's not ask him. Better to be silent than to be reproved. And so wisely, at this juncture, Peter kept his mouth shut. Say nothing. Better to say nothing. And so Jesus, and apparently the disciples did not take, come up and take the food. They must have stayed at some distance because then John says that 
Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. So come and eat. Look around. Don't know. Should we ask him? Let's stay silent. And then Jesus took the bread and the fish and brought it over and gave it to them. Now, John doesn't say that Jesus ate, though we know that he ate on a different occasion, Luke chapter 24. John doesn't say that they ate anything. But they stood there in awe of this, utterly amazed at what they were seeing. In fact, John skips over the entire account of the meal and whether they ate or not, not, or, or not, and they moves on to the restoration of Peter, which happened after they had finished eating. And that's uh, verse 15 and following. Look at verse 14. There's a parenthetical statement there. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, John is not saying this is the third time that Jesus appeared to anybody because John has already recorded three appearances. So this is the four, even in the Gospel of John. But he is saying that to the disciples as a group, or at least to a a large representative gathering of the disciples, this was the third appearance. He had appeared to them with Thomas absent. He had appeared to them with Thomas present. And this third time now is on the Sea of Tiberias with seven of these disciples. The fourth appearance to his disciples would be at the appearance to the over 500 recorded in Matthew chapter 28, which would be the very next appearance, somewhere on a mountaintop in Galilee. But this is the third appearance now that Jesus has appeared to his disciples. So what do we learn, then, from Jesus, from this appearance, and from this entire incident? I think that one of the things, other than understanding that our faithfulness and our fruitfulness and our provision all come from his hands, something that they would have to to learn and remember and understand and, and bank upon, since he is going to commission them to go out and to serve him, one of the things that I think that we should learn and be reminded of here is that just as Jesus physically ate with these disciples on the Sea of Tiberias, so it is also that you and I will physically sit down at a table with our king, and we will eat with him in the kingdom. That is the promise. And just as he provided this food for them then, he will provide food for us then. Just as he prepared this food for them them then, he will prepare our food for us then. We will sit down, and we will eat, and we will drink with our king and the saints over all the ages, just as they did back then. Now, communion, when we partake of communion, it is in a very small part a reminder of that reality. We do this until the Lord comes. When the Lord comes, we sit down at His table to a meal that is prepared for us, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will, in resurrected bodies, enjoy the best food, the best wine, the best fruit, the best fellowship, the best environment, and the best company that you can possibly imagine. That is what we get to look forward to. Communion is us participating in the Lord's table with the Lord spiritually present and us physically present, But eventually we do this until he comes knowing that when he arrives and he comes back and takes us to be with him, then we will sit down with him and it will not be this anymore. Then we will sit down and we will eat and drink with him in the saints in glory. What a glorious day that is. And we partake of communion because of what Christ has done. We look backward to his sacrifice on the cross, to the sacrifice where he gave his body and shed his blood, and the atonement and the satisfaction for our sin that that provided before the Father because it was a perfect sacrifice. And we're reminded of that sacrifice and what He has done in the full forgiveness of sins that comes to all of those who will repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We look back to that. We also look forward to the day and anticipate His return. This is just a small meal that we enjoy with Him spiritually present until He comes and we enjoy a full meal with Him when He is physically present. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, then do not partake of the Lord's Supper. The Bible warns that you do that, you eat and drink judgment to yourself. If you are a Christian, 
then when we eat the Lord's table and we partake of communion together, we do so understanding that though we are sinners, he has paid a price, a full atonement for our sins. And we come to him confessing our sins, turning from our sins, acknowledging our sins, and then partaking together as those who have been bought by the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us confess our sins, and then we will pray. Uh, we will partake together. Bow our heads. Our great Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us in providing a sacrifice which is able to atone and take away the wrath that we so fully and justly deserve. We thank you that though we are in these bodies of sin and death, that we have been imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we confess to you our sin and our iniquity, that we do not do those things that you have commanded us to do. We fail to fully obey you, and we often do those things that you command us not to do. But we thank you that our sin is not imputed to us, that our sin is not credited to our account. And so we are we are the man described back in the Psalms, the man whose sin is not credited to him, but instead has your righteousness. And we thank you for that. We thank you for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross so that he might pay the price that we deserve for our sin. We thank you that he has risen from the dead physically and ascended to heaven. We thank you that he sits at your right hand even today making intercession for us. And we thank you that we look forward to that day when he will return again and we will eat and drink in the kingdom with you. We long for that day. We long to be out of this world of sin and death and destruction. We long to be in glorified bodies that are not prone to sin and to prone to be corrupt. We thank you that we can look forward to and we long for that day when we will be in bodies and in a condition where the only inclination of our hearts will be to offer to you full obedience and love and affection and adoration and praise for all that you have done for us. And until that day, we pray that you would sanctify us, cleanse us from our sin, keep us in and by your grace, we pray. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Will the ushers come forward and help serve communion? Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.